Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hi, this is Daniel Koba, the Editor-in-Chief of AJHP and Vice President of Publishing at ASHP. And I'll be your host today for this ASHP Practice Journeys podcast. Again this year, as a celebration of pride, ASHP will host four podcasts with LGBTQ leaders in pharmacy. With me today is Dr. Kelly Brunk, a clinical oncology pharmacist at the University of Kansas Health System in Kansas City. Kelly, welcome. Good to see you again. You know, when I think about when we first met at the LGBTQ reception at the mid-year, I believe you were a third-year pharmacy student at that point. So catch me up on your career journey since then. It's been a while. Yes, yeah. So I was at P3 at that time, about halfway through the year. So I um, completed pharmacy school at University of Kansas and uh, graduated in 2018. Went on to do my PGA-1 residency at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in uh, Philadelphia, and then went on to do my PGY-2 in oncology at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And since finishing up that program last year, I've been back home in Kansas City at the University of Kansas Health System as a genital urinary and gastrointestinal clinical oncology pharmacist. And I've also been pretty involved with our uh, two local schools of pharmacy, both UMKC and KU. And I will be the course coordinator for our oncology elective at KU this fall. So how'd you end up choosing oncology pharmacy? So originally, I had planned to pursue infectious disease. And I actually went about all of my PGY1 interviews being like, oh, it's ID. It's ID all the way. And... I think it was because I am, I think actually being a gay man and having to, you know, talk about HIV and being interested in that and how much it affected the uh, community, uh, affected the community. That's why I wanted to do it. But when I actually got to PGY1 in Philadelphia, I found that I really liked the patients in, in oncology. And I worked at a community pharmacy when I was a student, and I had made the transition to hospital pharmacy and residency. And one thing I I missed was the follow-up with people. I loved creating like long-lasting relationships with my patients. And in the hospital, you hope not to do that because you hope that they come to the hospital and then they are away from the hospital. But with oncology... I think that there's so much resiliency and you do get to develop relationships that are long lasting for long periods of time. So that was one of the big uh, key factors. Plus I thought it was super challenging um, and also very rewarding uh, at the same time. So speaking of challenging and rewarding, one of the things that fascinated me most when we talked was, and maybe it's the frustrated artist in me, was your first career as a professional dancer. How old were you when you started to dance? I was five years old, and um, my uh, my younger sister, who's a year and a half younger than me, was put into a very basic like 
ballet and tap class and I would stare in the window and I'd say, mommy, mommy, I want to do that. I want to do that. And she said, no, 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 no. Let's go play soccer. Let's go play football. And so I would do that, but I would also go back every week and just look in the window and say, I want to do that. So eventually my parents did put me in my first dance class. And um, from there, it really just took off. We switched to a more uh, competitive studio. And then I also got very involved uh, with uh, ballet. I was training at the Kansas City Ballet School, as well as um, a really amazing uh, competitive studio called Priscilla and Dana School of Dance in Kansas City. And from there, I mean, it was kind of a clear transition to college and to a professional life afterwards. You say that it was a clear transition, but still, when did you make that decision to go into dance as a profession? I mean, I just started to think about it and I just wonder, is there a tipping point where you progressed to that decision that it was going to be your career? You know, it's funny you say that. All of my, I wouldn't say all of them, but many of my dance teachers said, you have brains, do not pursue this career. It's too hard. You don't make a lot. And when you actually do make enough money to support yourself. It's usually when you're a choreographer, when it, when you, you've really established yourself, but it takes years to get there. Um, even with, I mean, solid training, great connections, they said it's a hard life and that I could have an easier life by just pursuing something else that just used my brain, which of course, I think the, the, the teenager in me was like, well, forget that. I, I want to do this because I love it. And luckily, I had the support of my parents, who were very, very for dance. And they're, they were not dancers. They played baseball and softball. So I do think there becomes a tipping point. And it's got to be around, you know, age, uh, in, the, in the teenage years, 13 through 15, that you start to see people that are no longer taking dance to a, like a career path. They start to fizzle out of, of, the, of the dance community. But for me, it was just, it's so intrinsic to who I am. And I still think of myself as a dancer. Um, If not first, then it is definitely a a pillar of like my, like who I am. I am a dancer. And ultimately, you went on to the Tisch School of Art at New York University. And then you made reference to going on to be a professional dancer. Can you tell me about that experience at Tisch? and living in New York. And at that time, had you started your coming out journey as well, or did it all mesh together somewhere? It sure did. So this is taking us back to 2005 when I graduated high school. And I, this is just to also paint a picture, Facebook had just come out and to become like a little bit more outside of just the college realm. And so I got to New York and I had already made some, some friends on Facebook before. And um, my very first date with a guy was my very first night in New York after talking with him over the summer. And I wasn't out, but it was something that I thought was, um, I want to explore it with college. I was like, well, you know, uh, this might stick even though I think deep down there was a rooted truth in that. Tisch was amazing. Um, It really is um, the pinnacle of dance scholarship, Um, not just from a training aspect, but I think it's people that are really, they're dance intellectuals um, and that are interested in not just 
movement for movement, but really understanding history, understanding business, understanding how marketing. There's a lot that goes into it, as well as like a lot of like classes that I continue to teach today uh, in ballet and modern really founded in anatomy. So, and, and really the function of muscles and nerves. Um, and it's something that I pass on to my students now, but Tish was amazing. And the opportunities that I was allotted there um, was, were, were uh, numerous. Um, and I was very, very involved. Um, as for uh, coming out there, um, luckily NYU was a very accepting area, especially coming from Missouri, where I did, there weren't many openly um, gay people in my, in my direct like relation other than, um, I mean, some of the, some of my teachers that I would train with who were, were open in dance, but actually going to New York, it definitely was a liberating experience because of um, all the support that was offered there. And after I graduated from NYU uh, in 2008, I went on to live in Cleveland for two years. I danced for a company there and, uh, that was actually the harder shift. It wasn't as hard of a shift to go from the Midwest to New York and to really come into B, but actually to go back to a Midwest or more like a Mid-Eastern city in Cleveland where my age group wasn't as out and wasn't as comfortable. And I have to say I have an unfair advantage of being a dancer where the the community is is quite vibrant, so to say, in the dance community, and uh, especially in the the contemporary dance world, which is where I did most of my professional work, both in Cleveland and then in Chicago with uh, the company there. When you made the decision to then transition careers, I guess the first question I have is, how did you select pharmacy? I mean, I joked with you about this when we were at the mid-year, how does one make that leap from dance to pharmacy? To this day, it's still fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I it, it surprises me too because I um I did not know pharmacists growing up. I didn't really even know what I was getting myself into. I think even until I was a second year of pharmacy school that I really understood some of the possibilities of being a pharmacist. Um, so I was dancing in Chicago and uh, for a fabulous dance company uh, that unfortunately has folded since. Um, and I tore my left medial meniscus one year, came back for half a season, did a, a, a five-week tour through Russia and uh, with the dance company. And then um, as soon as I was back from our little summer break, I tore my right medial meniscus. And so my relationship actually with dance was pretty, it was, I wouldn't say, I, I felt almost betrayed that something that I had put my whole life into could have damaged me in such a capacity that I'm not able to actually do the things I love. And so I knew that I wanted to pursue something that was less stringent on my, uh, less hard on my body. But um, I was also dating a guy that I eventually married and he was a pharmacist. And I knew that I wanted to do something in the medical field. And I first thought physical therapy just because I had gone through so much physical therapy with both of my knee surgeries. So I started, I had to actually go back to school, back to a community college, which um, was a very like humbling experience, especially from being at such a grandiose university such as NYU to being back 
to my roots in Kansas City at a community college. And it was actually amazing. There was like, I, I, I think that that was so important that I did that because uh, that moment that I think some might think as, wow, that was a, a lower point. I learned so much um, both in <laughs> at school, but it was also, I, I, I really, I think I learned so much about myself during that time as well. But yeah, so I was dating a guy uh, who I eventually married, who was a pharmacist and he was a resident when we first started dating. And, and so our, our plan was to form a pop and pop independent pharmacy someday. But unfortunately, that things did not work out. And although I did not keep him, I did keep pharmacy. That's a great line. You didn't keep him, but you kept pharmacy. So Kelly, when you look at the two careers, the contrast between the two professions, at least to my naive eye, it's striking. But what were your experiences with the differences, especially as a gay man, when you arrived at pharmacy school, having come out of the world of professional dance? Yeah, they are very different. And I have to say, I was surprised that some of the the LGBTQ plus support wasn't already built into pharmacy, just because in the dance, dance world, um, the gay community is vibrant. And especially where I was working in New York and a little bit in Cleveland, uh, more so in Chicago. But even when I would teach on a national level, there's, it's, just, it's just more supported. And I think that's also pronounced by uh, the AIDS epidemic, uh, where you had dance companies that were, I mean, really, really affected um, by it. But my transition to, you know, going from these big cities to Lawrence, Kansas for pharmacy school, um, I was nervous. I was really nervous because here I was out. I was in my own skin. I've been out since I was officially out, out since I was 21, but really from my first date when I was 19 at NYU. Uh, And I wasn't planning on not being my authentic self. Because I think that's actually a huge disservice uh, that a lot of pharmacists that I've talked to have struggled when they're trying to come out come out as just pharmacists. They haven't come out in a prior career uh, or even like in high school. Um, it's fitting the mold of professionalism while still, you know, experiencing the culture that is that is sometimes crazy and ostentatious. And uh, but when I went to KU. I was I was pleasantly surprised by how accepting everybody was, and it wasn't just tolerance. I think sometimes tolerance is is a kind of a it's a a muddy word because you don't need to tolerate a crying baby, you don't like accept, and you you don't appreciate, you don't empathize. But I I definitely got that, and right when I was um, a P one, I so I had just gotten divorced from my partner. I was under financial strain with that. I actually, it was very humbling. I, I moved into to the dormitories there. How old um, were you at that point? I was 28, 28, back in the dormitories with all the uh, 18, 19 year olds. Now I have my own room, but I did share a bathroom, which uh, was something else. But, and then also during my P1 year, I was diagnosed with HIV. And that was really, 
something that I could not have done without my pharmacy friends. And I'm so grateful for everything that they, they, they provided. And it's still, it's, it's something that has been hard for me to discuss because I think there's so much, so much shame that goes with it. And it's one thing that I don't actually, not until probably the past couple of months have I really felt comfortable talking about other than in um, private relationships. But um, I think it's, it's one of those things that is my authentic truth now. And for the foreseeable future, it's not anything that's going to be going away, but that I'm undetectable. I'm on therapy. But having the support of, you know, I had a group of all heterosexual cis male friends and the support that they gave me through this time was, was, I mean, it couldn't have been better. It really couldn't have been better. And it was, it was hard, but um, it was something we got through actually as a group. I admire your bravery. I didn't expect you to talk about that today. I admire your bravery and being so honest about it. And I wonder, has it, has it gotten easier over time? You talked about how difficult it was at the beginning, but has it gotten easier? Yes, it has, but it's only been through, through a realization of I shouldn't be shameful, ashamed for, you know, being who I am. And, um, that has taken a lot of like this reflecting self-realization. And it was also something that I was so, I mean, I was ashamed to tell my parents. I was, um, I never disclosed in interviews. And it was also just one of those things that I think every gay man who comes out, one of the things that their parents say is, well, I just hope you don't get AIDS. And that's, that's really hard to actually deal with because here you're already dealing with what some might seem as a disappointment. Oh, you're gay. You're lesser of a person. But then having, well, we just don't want you to have HIV. And it comes from a place of caring, but it also comes from, that means that I don't feel comfortable disclosing that I am just like, well, when you're younger, well, just don't be gay you have a harder time of disclosing that you are gay because, you know, you can be this, but that kind of extra, um, the the caveat. So it was one thing that I think is, uh, that was, that was part of it was the shame that already comes from, uh, from that. But, you know, the more that we find out about, you know, undetectable is untransmissible, the more data we have to support that. I believe it's the the person's uh, trials that really show us that data the more comfortable I feel of disclosing it. Plus, I think about the other people that actually are positive and are health professionals that are still afraid to share. And I think when that happens, when you are so ashamed to share something about yourself, that limits others from really finding out about you, but also limits them from sharing their ability to be themselves. And it, you know, it's funny. I just, I was, my birthday was a couple of weeks ago, and we were, um, we were having a happy hour with some of my my colleagues from work, who I had studied for BCOP for, with. And um, I said, I, I have something really important to share with you. And um, I, I, I said, you know, I've been living with HIV since 2015, and it's just, 
I just wanted you to know because you guys are my close friends and I don't think it changes anything. But actually the conversations that I had with them, they were amazing. And I think there's still the stigma though of, oh, this will only happen to dirty, gay, usually low lower class IV drug users. And I'm also to show that the picture has changed. It's not that. People are living their day, daily lives, working in professions, but still afraid sometimes to, to share. You know, Kelly, when I started my coming out process, it was 1983. It was the year that HIV AIDS made the cover of Time and Newsweek. The virus hadn't even been discovered yet. So I clearly remember that era and the fear and uncertainty that we experienced. I also remember, and I was just talking with my husband about this a couple of weeks ago, about when I, when I was at dinner one night in the mid-1990s with a good friend of mine who's an infectious disease physician up in Rochester, New York. We were at dinner, and she'd just come back from the AIDS conference. Her name's Margie Urban, and she was talking about how it was going to be a chronic disease. It was going to be a chronic disease like diabetes at some point. And that was so hope-instilling. And I know I'm supposed to be interviewing you, but I do think that there's, there's a number of changes that are occurring in society as people learn more. And as our experience with HIV advances, people, people's understanding will also advance. I hope, I just have to say it again, I'll say I wasn't expecting us to talk about this today, and I so admire your bravery. And I think that if there are people listening to this at some point who might be struggling themselves, I hope they see you as a role model. And so I guess we have lots more to talk about, yes. but I want to thank you because it's such a powerful message, an authentic story that you're sharing. So thank you for that, Kelly. Of course. You made a mention before about when you were talking about your HIV diagnosis that you didn't tell anybody during the residency match process. I'm just wondering about the match process itself as a gay man. Something I didn't ask you as we got started, I actually didn't ask you how you identify. I identify as a homosexual cis male. So pronouns, he, him, his. And the reason I say that is I'm getting ready to interview in a couple of weeks pharmacy residents as part of this series who identify as queer. And we're going to spend some time talking about that word. So I just wanted to check in, and I realized I'd forgotten to ask you that question. Anyway, going back to the residency process, what was the whole process like for you as a gay man? So I thought it was stressful, as, <laughs> as all of the match matching process is. It just is hard. It's a lot of interviewing, a lot of putting your best foot forward. You want to you know, tell enough for somebody to get to know you, but not overshare. And I, I mean, as a gay man, I don't know, I, I guess I gravitated to programs that I knew were going to be accepting. They were bigger programs. They were ones that I knew had great diversity that were in bigger cities often. So perhaps it was also Part of my selection was I was I was going for programs and you know where I where I ended up matching uh, Jefferson was one of the most welcoming places in Philly and that was just it was fabulous because it's an, I mean one of the 
the oldest uh, residency accredited programs. And, um, and many of their, their pharmacists are out and proud and even their preceptor, many of their preceptors were as well. And I got to interact with them on the interview. And I was the only member of our PGY1 class that was uh, part of the LGBTQ community of our seven. Uh, but still, I mean, it was always welcoming. And for my PGY2 at, at UNC, I don't think, I mean, I mean, I, it definitely brought it up because I thought it was, it's an asset, like, well, I, I guess it's an asset to be true to yourself and an asset to know who you are when you're going into residency. And if the program isn't going to accept that and isn't going to welcome that and isn't going to celebrate that, celebrating differences, I mean, that's also part of the learning environment. It's not just the clinical stuff. It's how do you work with people from different backgrounds and, and working with patients from different backgrounds. And part of that is, is getting a group together that has different opinions. And that's one thing I loved about UNC when I went there, because that's a huge class, but the diversity in that group was amazing. And even in the um, oncology program, there were four residents and all of this were from very different backgrounds, but collectively I learned so much about other cultures, about one of, one of my best friends there was from Maine and just kind of hearing his story and a very, very different uh, upbringing and uh, going hunting and stuff that was just not part of like what I did. <laughs> so it was wonderful, but it, it, it goes into the match process. And, and my advice to people that are going through it is to be an unapologetic, authentic self. You need to be yourself. You're not trying to put on a facade um, because that's actually where you'll get more stressed out and it'll take up more of your 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 energy to put on a face versus just being yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I can't agree with you more. It's an experience that sometimes takes time to learn. Do you think that you benefited from the fact that you were an older person, not old, but older person going into the match in the sense that you had a previous career? I do. I think that that definitely I knew I think a little bit more about time management as well as like really, really like what do I value? I feel like I had I'd already thought about that um, and I was able to um, not get, there were times that were, were very stressful during uh, residency, but still I feel like me being older and ha having, a, this is my second career, I definitely feel like that was, uh, that was definitely a, a benefit for me to get my ducks in a row, I think a little bit more easily. You know, going back to dance for a minute, earlier you mentioned anatomy in the conversation. Are there things from your career in dance that you've applied to your career as a pharmacist? Hmm. So I think every kid should be put in dance because it teaches you discipline, how to take critique, how to work together as a team, how to put on a show and when things aren't going well, how to perform under stress. All of those are characteristics that I find myself doing every day. 
as well as in my my, my ballet classes. So I, I currently teach for a convention that where I teach just ballet and I teach injury prevention. I teach that on the weekends, about seven to 10 weekends a year. And then I also teach for a local uh, junior ballet, uh, junior dance company, but I'm their ballet teacher as well. And a lot of what I stress is understanding anatomy, which that that does get a little bit into pharmacy. It did help me with some of my basic science stuff. Um, But I think more so it was problem solving and to be able to, to, to recognize patterns um, that was also something that helped me tremendously when I'm, you know, reading primary literature, when I'm looking at a, a patient, I'm pulling a, pulling out little things. It's that same sort of pattern recognition that I got from dance and learning choreography very quickly and to be able to do an audition process where, you know, you have 10 minutes to learn the phrase and then it's like, all right, let's do it. And then, you know, you're cut or you're, you're kept for the next round right away. I mean, and that's all about being able to learn and adapt quickly. So um, I do see that every single day with uh, clinical decisions. And um, it's one thing that I, I do stress to my parents to of dancers to say, you know, part of this is, yes, the physicality that I'm wanting, but I'm more so most of the, the dancers that I train will not become professional dancers. And I'm okay with that because the skills that they learn they're going to use those skills to, for other things as well. And I think some also inherent like competitiveness is actually good within a classroom. So, and it's one thing that, you know, by everyone working hard, you know, hard work is infectious, but so is laziness. So it's one thing that like, if someone is, is, is going to jump a little higher or they're going to, they're going to like bottom of their leg, even a, a, an inch higher, someone else is going to try and outdo that. And then by the end, the whole classroom is working harder. We're all achieving more. And it's the same thing in pharmacy with high achievers. And it's one thing that I've been so grateful to be at University of Kansas currently, where I'm surrounded by people that are wanting to do more, wanting to, to, to publish more, to get more involved with students, to get more with training, mentoring. That commitment to others is infectious because it is so rewarding in the end for everyone. And that sounds like a pageant answer, but, uh, (laughs) but it's true. It's true. I mentioned earlier, as we started off our conversation that you and I first met each other at one of the LGBTQ receptions at the mid-year. Something that I frequently hear from ASHP members is that they're so happy that ASHP has embraced the LGBTQ community in this way. Now, you have a really special story about the LGBTQ reception at the mid-year. Are you willing to share that with our listeners today? Of course. Yeah. My, uh, my, my current partner, his name is Josh, and we met at the LGBT Mixer, not this past year, but the previous one, uh, when it was actually in the flesh and uh, in Vegas. And I am... Uh, so grateful for that meeting. And it was one thing that I was finishing up my residency at UNC and he was a professor down in Atlanta at uh, Mercer uh, University. It was taught law down there. And we, I guess one of the, the silver linings of COVID is that we were able to work from home during my last part of residency. And then also during that time for him, 
And so he actually came up to Chapel Hill um, and we were in my one bedroom apartment where he would work from my from my bed and then I would have my my desktop uh, out in the living room and we just spent basically the for the end of the three or the three months at that point just in this one bedroom apartment and surrounded by each other 24 7 and fortunately he uh, he moved with me to, to Kansas and um, he's he's been loving it because I have my uh, he's a family man and I'm a family man and we uh, we live close to uh, my brother my sister and my parents so it's really it's been great to connect with my family and then we get to go down and see his family in Georgia every now and then not as much as we would like to to right now but um we have been able to go uh, back uh, once or twice but I do have ASHP's LGBT mixer to thank for that. And um, it was a great time to connect with uh, members of the community as well as potential relationships. (laughs) 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 But um, who knew? What a great story and what a great way to end our conversation today. Kelly, thank you so much for agreeing to participate in the ASHP 2021 Pride podcast. And again, I have to thank you just for your honesty, your courage, and your role modeling. I think that it's just an amazing story, and I love it. I hope many more people meet at the mid-year LGBTQ reception. And in fact, I look forward to seeing you in person at the reception in December. So again, I want to thank Kelly Brunk for joining us today to discuss his journey. Join us here at ASHP Official and the Practice Journey podcast as we learn about how LGBTQ pharmacy leaders seek out, grow, and evolve during their careers. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your colleagues, family, friends, and via your social media of choice. And enjoy Pride 21. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.